privilege of uh, wherever you may be. I'm hoping you're getting rest and enjoying time with your family. I'm always privileged to stand in the place where I know the gospel is preached without compromise, without watering it down. Uh, the church uh, is marching on, and I'm very pleased to see that and to know that. Second Samuel chapter 6. Verses 1 through 15. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. I listened to the um, wonderful singing, and one of the songs uh, indicated that blessing and honor, glory and power be ascribed to our God because he's a God of majesty and then he's a God of mystery. That's exactly what the Lord had laid on my heart to talk about, the God of majesty and mystery. And they took that theology and they sung it. And so I want to preach on the God of majesty and mystery, Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Hear these words from the Word. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went in front of the ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah, so that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It was told David, the king, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom, all that belongs to him, because of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. I will not forget that day. 
October the 14th, 1987. Little Jessica McClure, 18-month-old girl, sat on the porch in the backyard of her aunt's house. There she was in Midland, Texas, dangling her feet over what appeared to be a eight-inch hole in the ground. She was only left a few minutes, just a few minutes, but that's really all it took. She stood upon that little innocent-looking eight-inch hole and fell 22 feet into the darkness. The rescue team was immediately called. They tried to rescue her. Her body was in that well shaft in a very awkward position. One leg was sticking up and the other was sticking down. For 58 hours, they struggled to relieve her of her imprisonment in that well shaft. But to no avail. Finally, the rescue team went down one more time. And the medical team had advised them to take her vital signs once more. They sent them back up. The doctor said, she has no more time. We may have to pull hard in order to break her, to release her. No more time. Pull hard. We may have to break her. To release her. And they did that because they had drilled a 29-foot parallel shaft alongside the well shaft that she was stuck in. And a five-foot vertical, a five-foot horizontal uh, tunnel in order to connect with her. And through all of that struggle, for 58 hours, they were not able to release her until finally, after nearly 60 hours of struggle, she is released without any additional injuries. Pull hard. There is no more time. You may have to break her to save her. What a word for the church. There is no more time. Time is short. The church needs to be entered into and admitted into God's general hospital for a period of redemptive observation. Because a sick church cannot minister to a critically ill world. The church needs a blood transfusion. Because these are perilous times. The kind of times that Issachar understood. As the chronicler wrote in First Chronicles 12 and 32. And the men of Issachar knew the times and understood what Israel ought to do. The kind of times that Charles Dickens in his classic, A Tale of Two Cities, talks about in the very opening lines. It was the best of times and the worst of times. The kind of times that Thomas Paine had reference to when he said, These are the times that try men's souls. The Germans call it zeitgeist, spirit of the times. And Paul reminds us in Romans 13 and 11, it is high time for us to awake out of sleep. There is no more time. Pull hard. 
you may have to break her to save her. Alden Wilson Tozier, A.W. Tozier, one of the chief architects of the Christian Missionary Alliance movement, reminds us that it is seldom that God will ever use a person greatly until he has broken that person deeply. And if this church wants to be used greatly, it will require some breakage in the lives of its members. I just talked to my brother here. He just came up to me and just shared. He understands what it's like to lose a job. And yet, God put him in the waiting room to see if he'll trust him when he doesn't have a job like he trusted him when he did. And God restored him. And to have a granddaughter, 40 months, 48 months old, didn't seem like she was going to make it. And yet God has restored her. And she can tell when the moon is out better than I can. God has a way of putting us in the waiting room to see, will we trust him in the night the way that we trusted him during the day? A few months ago, of course, you know I teach down at Birmingham, Alabama, and um, have a residence there and have a residence here. Have a car there, have a car here. I don't say that arrogantly. I just say that because that's just fact. Had to have that. I allowed my uh, license sticker to be expired for a week or so. And all of a sudden, I was only one, one block away from the house in Birmingham, and the lights went on. I knew that was not good news. I pulled over to the side. I knew what the, the policeman was after. I pulled out my wallet before he got there, and I took out my driver's license because I knew he was going to ask me for that. He came up to my car. Uh, he said, good evening. I said, good evening. He says, I want to inform you that uh, your license tags are expired. Uh, would you give me your license plate, please? Your, your, your light driver's license? I gave it to him. He went, took about five minutes, checked his computer in his car to make sure I didn't have some kind of outstanding criminal record. Came back to me. Then he uh, said to me, uh, give me your registration. And I gave him my registration. Then he asked for my insurance papers. I gave that to him. But I gave him something extra. I gave him a title of the car. He checked all that out, then he brought everything back, gave it to me. Then he said to me, because we, we were very cordial, we started talking about each other's uh, mother in terms of uh, the cooking that they did and, and how graceful they were and people of dignity. It was a wonderful conversation, really great, great conversation. He said to me, sir, I see that you're putting your title and your registration back in your glove compartment box, as well as um, your title. Sir, don't put your title in the glove compartment box because if anyone gets the car and gets the title, then whoever has the title owns the car. He still gave me a ticket. But whoever owns, whoever has the title owns the car. This is what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Whoever seemingly owns the ark has the power. The Ark of the Covenant of God is what is at stake in 1 Samuel chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. And, of course, in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The children of Israel uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 4 decided to fight against 
the Philistines without the ark. The ark was just a wooden box that had a gold covering, a lid that was known as the mercy seat. And on top of that mercy seat were mounted chair beams, and they faced each other. Inside of the box were three items of their history that were important. Number one, there was the law of God, which represented the word of God. Uh, second of all, there was Aaron's rod that budded, without soil, without water, which represented the power of God. And third of all, there was the um, uh, manna uh, that God had cooked from heaven for 40 years to keep the children of Israel, a wilderness people, alive, which represented, if you will, the provision of God. Who are, whoever owns the ark apparently has the power. They fought against the children of the Philistines, and they lost. In fact, they lost 4,000 men. The elders assembled and said, the reason why we lost this battle is because we didn't have the ark of God with us. Because the ark of God represented, above everything else, the presence of God in the midst of his people. That God is present, not passively, but actively. So they decided to take the ark. Go get the ark from Shiloh where the tabernacle was. Bring it with us when we fight against the Philistines the second time. They fought against the Philistines because they had the title deed. They knew they were going to win. They lost. Not only did they lose, they were routed. The first time, they lost 4,000 men without the ark. With the ark, now they will lose 30,000. Mm. Even with the symbolical presence of God in their midst. To make things worse, the Philistines captured the ark because they represented that this was, they realized this represented uh, the godlike power in the midst of the people of Israel. They took the ark and put it in their temple in Ashdod, one of their five principal cities, and put the ark of God alongside their god, Dagon, because the ark was put in the temple of Dagon. The next morning, they came to the ark. And saw that the ark was still standing, but Dagon, their god, had fallen on his face right in front of the ark. They had to lift up their god. You're talking about something funny. They had to lift up their god and put their god back in place. The next moment, they put the god next up, right alongside of the ark. Woke up the next morning, there's their god again, right in front of the ark. No head attached. Arms and hands cut off. God was showing that he's more powerful than any God in the universe. In fact, the word idol means no thing. That God is God all by himself. And as my mama says, he don't need nobody else. Well, Ashdod, they decided, hey, this is a um, divine hot potato. We've got to get rid of this God. So they take and uh, transfer the God to uh, the place of Gath. It's another principal city. The Gathites take the God, and the tumors break out like they broke out with the Astadites. They said, hey, this is a divine theological uh, hot potato. We've got to move this to Ekron, another principal city of the Philistines. And tumors broke out among them. In other words, everywhere the Philistines took God, if you will. Folk broke out in tumors. God is too hot to handle. So they decided in chapter number 6 of 1 Samuel 
that they were going to take and put this Ark of the Covenant, which represented God in the midst of his people, on a new cart and let two milk cows without drivers, too dangerous to handle God, take the Ark wherever it would. If it was taken to the area of Israel, then it meant that God was acting on his own part and power to destroy the Philistines. Sure enough, they watched the ark being transported by these two milk cows. And the ark stopped in the field there of the men of Jeshemesh, the men of Bethshemesh, rather, stayed there. And God was blessing them. However, the descendants of Jeconiah took and showed with a great sense of a lack of appreciation that they did not welcome the ark and God killed 70 of them. Now the ark would come to rest in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. And the curator would be a son of Abinadab who owned that house on the hill. And he would be Eleazar who would take care of the ark along with the other two sons, Ahioel, uh, and this son who would support the work of the ark. Well, this brings us to our text, because whoever has the title has the power. Whoever has the ark has God. That's the apparent feeling. We open up in chapter 6 of Second Samuel 6. David is a new king in town. Saul's reign is over. And one of the things that David wants to do is to centralize power so that he wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He no longer is in Hebron where he had reigned for seven and a half years. He now has made Jerusalem the capital city where it will reign for 33 years. He wants to bring the ark back home, but he wants to do it with pomp. He wants to do it with celebration. He wants to do it with a sense of magnificence. He has the right numbers. 30,000 people will be a part of this when Jehovah comes marching home. Hooray, hooray, hooray. He has the right liturgical dance ministry. Not only does David dance to the Lord, but the people dance to the Lord. He has the right choral aggregation. People are singing as the ark is being brought back into Jerusalem. He has the right kind of etiquette. There is structure. There is organization. He has the right musical accompaniment. You're talking about a wonderful band, orchestra here. They had a wonderful orchestra to represent the welcoming celebration for the ark of God, which represented God's presence in the midst of his people. And in the midst of all of that, something went catastrophically wrong. The ark that was being carried on a wooden cock shook. And the ark started sliding. And Uzzah reached out to catch the ark to keep it from falling. Because had it fallen, that wooden box would have broken Perhaps the gold would have cracked. And then the content of the law, the table, uh, the pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that brought would have been exposed. And God would have been seen. So Uzzah has to help God out. And he reaches out to catch the ark. 
and God strikes him dead. Now, I realize this is not a post-Thanksgiving service sermon. I understand that. We ought to be thanking God. But until we recognize that God is a God of mystery and majesty, we cannot worship God intelligently. He is both. He is majesty. We adore Him. He is mystery. We tremble before Him. So mystery and majesty represents our trembling adoration when it comes to worshiping God authentically. The Scripture says in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 6 that David is angry because God has struck Uzzah, the son of Abinadab, who tries to keep the ark from falling from the ox cart that had been shaken by the oxen. And David asks the question in verse 9, How can the ark of God ever come to us? How? Verse 8 is an interesting question. An interesting statement. David is angry. It's a mystery. Why would God kill an innocent, well-intentioned man who's trying to catch the ark? Is God having some kind of temperamental Temper tantrum? Is the Almighty having an attitude? Is God having some kind of mysterious fit? Is this a bad day for God? Why is he picking on Uzzah when Uzzah is just trying to help? I can understand why God in Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 and 2, when Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire, fire that was not according to the fire, the ingredients that were to be put in uh, the censer um, the to make the fire. I can understand why God would kill them. I can understand why God would kill Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 to 9 for lying. I understand that. I, I hear in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis uses the character of Ashland the lion as a god figure. And the lion, Ashland, roars and is the king of the beasts. And the question is asked, is Ashland safe? And the response is, Ashland is not safe, but he is good. Hear me when I tell you, God is not safe, but God is good. He He's no one to play with. You can't own him. God is just good, and yet he's holy. He's holy other. He's different than we are. He is the other God. He is the otherness of humanity. So therefore, we worship him as a result of that. Verse 9, can the ark of God ever come to us? How can it? Too dangerous. If it comes to us, it could bring further catastrophes and further atrocities. This question is explicit with redemptive reverberations. And if you listen close to how can the ark of God ever come to us, you will hear echoes of mercy and whispers of love. 
How can the ark of God ever come to us? Why would God, who is a God of majesty and mystery, zap Uzzah and kill him on the spot so that he is now lying down dead next to the ark he was trying to rescue? Let me offer a few suggestions. One, I suggest to you that Uzzah was trying to do the work of God without the word of God. That Uzzah was trying to do the work of God without the word of God. First Chronicles chapter 15, verses 13, 14, and 15. When David will do it right, verse 13 says, he understood that the outburst of God's anger took place on Uzzah because uh, the ark of God uh, was touched. The ark of God was being carried in a wooden cart. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. It was never supposed to be carried in a wooden cart. Never supposed to be transported that way. According to the scriptures, only Levites, priests, were supposed to carry the ark, and they were never to touch it. The ark would have rings on the sides, and they would have poles through which they would put the poles through the rings so that they could hoist up the ark on their shoulder without coming in contact with it on both sides. But they got this idea of putting the ark in a wooden cart from the Philistines. That's what the Philistines did. When they captured the ark, they put it in a wooden cart, and now it is being driven by Ahio and his brother Uzzah in a wooden cart. The idea gotten from the Philistines. We cannot, brothers and sisters, do the work of God without the Word of God. And we are living in a day where we cannot compromise truth. Yes, we must love everyone with unconditional love but not with unconditional license. And the church is going to have to take a stand on that. We're not called to be politically correct. And it doesn't make any difference. Even our president, whatever position he takes, we are not those who shift according to personal feelings. We are those who believe that the grass with us the flower fades away, but the word of God shall stand forever. And you cannot vote on this. You've got to take that stand. And it may make you unpopular. And you may miss some folk joining your church because you don't have an elastic enough theology. But don't bend it. Stick with the book. Because God wrote it. God said it. Whether or not you and I believe it, that settles it. Therefore, we must do the work of God by the Word of God. One of my dear sons in the ministry, who is, um, and he made this very public through tweeting and texting, whatever that means, and has said it in several venues, is now pursuing a doctorate degree. Let people know that he no longer subscribes to a man for a woman, believes in alternative lifestyles, and believes that men can be with men, and women can be with women, and, 
and same-sex marriage and all and on. I, I realize that this is very popular in some circles. But if you're going to do the word, work of God, you've got to do it with the Word of God. You can't relax. It's unconditional love. Yes, but not unconditional license. Anything does not go with God. And therefore, they, that is Uzzah, and his brother Ahio, they were driving the ark of God on a wooden ox cart when it's supposed to be carried by Levites with poles through rings so that they never came in contact with the ark. I would suggest to you, second of all, that others tried to do the work of God without doing the will of God. It was an instinct that he had. Here's the ark falling. It's a knee-jerk reaction. goes to catch it. It's well-intentioned, but it is not God's will. You and I cannot serve God based upon good intentions. Mama used to say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You don't serve God by instinct. You don't serve God by feelings. And therefore, it can never be sensio ergo psalm, which means I feel. Feel, therefore, I am. I sense, therefore, I am. And it can never be Rene Descartes, a child of the Enlightenment of the 17th century A.D., French mathematician philosopher, who said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore, I am. I feel, therefore, I am, sense ergo sum, which is very cardiological. It's my heart. And then cogito ergo sum, cogitation. I think, therefore, I am, which is very cranial. It is not cranial or cardiological. It is both. And therefore, I must realize that it is the Word of God that must govern what I think and what I feel. Feeling must not be the standard or the barometer for our worship of God. What do you feel like coming to church or not? It has nothing to do with it. You come into his house because he's been good and you come to praise him regardless of what you've been through. And you lift up your voice and you give him praise even if you had the worst night in your life because that's when you really need to praise him. You need to praise yourself out of darkness in the light. You do the work of God by doing the will of God. I think Uzzah is apt because he tried to do the work of God in his own strength. His own strength. Remember, this ark represents the presence of God in the midst of his people. In other words, this box is an emblem of God. Now, how are you going to help God out? That's one of our problems. We've got to help God. Don't want that box to fall. We've got to help God. Because if God falls to the ground and gets all broken up in the smithereens, what are we going to do? When did God ever need help? Remember, what, what is in the box? One, the law. A copy of the tablets. Don't want the tablets to break up. But you cannot break up the Word of God. 
God's word can never ever go out of existence. Ever. So I'm going to help God out by not allowing his word to disintegrate. Ridiculous. Plus, what else is in the box? Aaron's rod that budded, which represents the power of God. Here is a rod that grows almond leaves and almonds on it without soil and without water. Instantly. That's the power of God. And God wants to show you that you don't have to go according to anybody's plan. God can do something so miraculous in your life that it'll blow your mind. You haven't really lived enough. If you cannot come to a place where you have to say, here are some things I cannot explain. I have to attribute it to God. If everything you can explain by your strength, by your intelligence, by your degree, by your skillfulness, by your acumen, then it is all too logical. You've got to get to a place in your life where you go beyond the logical to the supralogical, where something you just have to say, God did it. I can't explain it, but God did it. My healing, yes, I thank God for doctors, I thank God for caregivers, but God did it. God has sustained me. God has brought me through a marriage that seemed to be hopeless. God did it. Got to be that way. And God can take your cane, your rod, without soil, without water, without going through photosynthesis, and grow almonds on it, and grow buds on it, and grow leaves on it instantly. Anybody here know what I'm talking about? Where there's some things in your life you'll never be able to explain. All you can say is, God did it. It wasn't luck. It wasn't a rabbit's foot. I keep telling people if the rabbit was that lucky, he would still have a foot. It's not that. It's not voodoo. God did it. But then in, there's manna. There's manna in a pot back there. And... Us surely doesn't want that to fall out. But the matter represents the provision of God, that God has made a way. In my little church, the old saints used to say, God will make a way out of no way. And what they meant by that is, God will bring you to your Red Sea and you don't have a ferry boat to bring you across. You don't have a bridge to cross it at all. And God will open up the Red Sea and dry it up so that you'll get across the Red Sea. And you won't even have a muddy feet when you get to the other side. God is a God of provision. God is a God who makes a way where there is no way. And here is us a trying to use his own strength to keep the ark from falling to the ground. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you tried to help God out? When was the last time when you thought that your uh, plan B was necessary because his plan A was not going to work. Now, I know I'm not the only one here. I've done that before. And I'm glad that God reminded me, Robert Smith, I don't need you. You are not indispensable. You are very dispensable. You are very expendable. I chose to use you. And because I chose to use you, you ought to be grateful and you ought to give God praise. I think sometimes we get so stuck up with arrogance and we think that we are irreplaceable. I keep telling people, mess around and die. And if you have an opportunity to look back wherever you are, 
you'll see that you really were not as important as you thought you were. Somebody will sit in your seat before your body gets cold. Somebody's going to drive your car. You're not the only pebble on the beach, and you're not the only fish in the sea, and you're not the only rooster in the barnyard. You're not that important. You're not that cute. You're not that handsome. You're not that anything. All you are is just a piece of dust for 60, 70, 80 years, perhaps, and that's it. The only thing that makes you special is that deity decided to get in your dust so that God, by his spirit, decided to live in you. That's what means what the psalmist meant in Psalm 8, that you've been crowned with glory and honor because God chose to set up residence in you. We must not, I, I know you're wrestling with various things. Don't try to help God out. He doesn't need your help. Just do his work according to his word and do his work according to his will and don't try to do it according to your strength. I think another reason why Uzzah may have been zapped is because Uzzah tried to mishandle or tried to handle sacred things in an erroneous way, in an erroneous way. The text says in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, that the ark of the covenant of God was in the house of Abinadab. Abinadab is the father of Eliezer, Ohio, and the father of Uzzah. Was there for 20 years. So it's very possible that Uzzah saw this ark every day this box for 20 years, just 20 years. What do you do when you are around something that's really special for 20 years? Sometimes you start taking it for granted. Try it out with your marriage. Mm -hmm. Try it out with some other things. You can be around something so long that it loses its luster for you and loses its radiance. And it's very possible that, a, uh, that other had been around this ark for 20 years as one of the curators for 20 years, that it became just another box. Just another box. Another box. It's very possible, brothers and sisters, that we can be around God and around the church so long that it loses its sacredness. Worship is just another event. Nothing special about being here. We're going to start at 1045. Well, Robert Smith is here today, so it'll probably be a little longer. But it's just another event. I don't expect anything to happen today. Nothing special at all. We're going to sing a few songs. We're going to give some money. We're going to pray. We're going to shake hands. We're going home. Just another event. Been around it so long. It's very possible for baptism to be just another rite of passage. Not excited necessarily when someone goes down into the water. It's just another dunking. Been around it so long. When we have communion, it's just another light refreshment before Applebee's, before whatever restaurant you eat or the, the home that you want to eat in. Just a light refreshment. When it comes to doctrine, to Scripture, just another book. I don't expect anything to be said from this book today that's going to touch my life, especially uh, when I came here expecting to hear uh, a text from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all ye lands. And here's this 
brother coming up here talking about God striking us unto death. Does he understand that this is the Sunday following Thanksgiving? And you're not supposed to preach that kind of text on Thanksgiving. Because I never realized that the Bible had to be a special occasion offering to people. Yaroslav Pelikan, who taught at Yale University, a Greek um, Eastern Orthodox professor, scholar, wants to find doctrine as whatever the church believes, teaches, and confesses on the basis of the Word of God, this is Christian doctrine. The Christian doctrine is whatever the church of the Lord Jesus Christ believes, teaches, and confesses on the basis of the Word of God. This is Christian doctrine. This is not Gulliver's Travels. Uh, this is not Stephen King's work. This is not anyone else. This does not even contain the Word of God. This is the Word of God, and the church must come back to that. I know that this is a text that we're not so excited about. I knew you were going to be excited about it because it doesn't taste good. It didn't taste good to me. But it's the Word of God. And God wants me to see him as a God of mystery and majesty so that I can authentically worship him. Evangelism is, is optional. It's another event. We tell one person about Jesus and, okay, that's our quota for the year, once a year. Nothing special about that. Charles Colson went home to be with the Lord a few months ago in his work on loving God. He said, people who need to hear the gospel oftentimes don't hear the gospel because we keep on evangelizing the same people over and over and over again until our final mission is to entertain ourselves. Our final mission is to entertain ourselves. Because I'm Trinitarian, I'm going to say it one more time. Our final mission is to entertain ourselves. The church is not a Sunday club for perfect people. It is a hospital for sinners. Those who are saved by grace and those who are unsaved. Everyone is hurting and everyone needs Jesus. And Jesus is the answer. So what is your question? He is the answer to every single question. And therefore, the church should not be a place where we continue to evangelize the same old, same people over and over and over and over again. Liberty Heights has been a church that has welcomed all. And you're beginning to look more and more and more like the kingdom. That's the way it's supposed to be because that's the way the kingdom is going to look. And I must not continue to appeal to people who are of the same socioeconomic, educational strata that I'm in, who look like me, individuals who have my temperament. No, the gospel is for everybody. And my job is to be a sower, and I scatter the seed. Some of it may fall on stony ground, and some of it may fall on thorny ground, and some of it may fall on wayside ground, and some of it may fall on good ground. And even if it falls on good ground, it's not my doing. It represents a kind of heart response to the seed that's sown on it. 
And then to hear the gospel is just another event. We don't necessarily expect anything to happen, oftentimes, during or after the sermon is preached. In fact, the gospel has become an accommodation for many churches. It's something you just have to have. It's a sideline activity. It's not the main line at all. And so much of it is done out of a sense of um, duty. Even when I say this to you. One of my dear friends was in conversation, and he shared this with me, with a um, Chinese brother who came over here to visit the United States and to preach. And during his tour, he reached this conclusion, and he said this to my friend. He says, I'm amazed at how much American churches can accomplish without the Holy Spirit. I'm amazed how much American congregations can accomplish without the Holy Spirit. We become Holy Spirit shy. We don't expect the Spirit to work through the gospel. We talk a lot about the excesses and the abuses of the Holy Spirit, but we are not willing to acknowledge the presence of the Holy Spirit because we are afraid that the Spirit might just take over and we can't control Him. And when He takes over, you can't control Him, so just keep Him out and maybe keep the door cracked just a little bit for Him to get in every now and then. You've got to be careful about people who lift up their hands now. They may be going into some kind of charismatic excess. got to be careful about my brother when he was sharing his testimony. A grown man crying. Big boys. Haven't you ever heard of the four seasons? Big boys don't cry. He cried. Gotta be careful about that. Too emotional. Because you don't get emotional in church. You get emotional at the Bearcats games. You get emotional at weddings. You get emotional watching wrestling, which is nothing but a fake. But you don't come to church and weep. That's too charismatic. Uh, We've come to a place, as A.W. Tozier said years ago, many years ago, his great concern was that God might take the Holy Spirit out of the world and the church for the next 25 years would keep on doing the same thing and not even know the difference. Because we don't think we need the Holy Spirit to run the church. All we think we need is a big building, a big budget, and enough bodies. That's it. But there's something that will never happen in the congregation if you really want God to be present. Some things will never happen without the Spirit. I don't care how much money a congregation has. I don't care how many uh, bodies are, sit in the pews or the chairs. And I don't care uh, how large the building is. It takes the Spirit of God operating through the Word of God to bring the church to a place where God really wants the church to be. God zapped us because he reached out and he touched the ark. Strange thing takes place now, verse 10 and following. David realizes that, that God is too dangerous to have around. The box represents the presence of God. And so he takes and moves the box away so it will stay in the house of Ebed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months because God thought it's too dangerous to have around. Three months. 
And the strange thing is that God blesses the house of Ebed-Edom. Blesses it. No one's killed. No catastrophe. No atrocity. Three months. Why? Is it for God to cool off? No. I think it's for David to have three months to think. Three months to think about this. You'll see it in just a moment. Three months. What grace. What grace. Sometimes God just gives us time to think. Jonah wanted to go to Nineveh. God wanted him. God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah wanted to go to Tarshish. Jonah wanted to go west. God wanted him to go east. So Jonah went west. Went down to Joppa. Paid his own fare. Went down into the ship. And then God had prepared a three nights stay in an underwater hotel for three nights because he wanted Jonah to think about it. You say you want to, you sure you want to do this? Jonah prayed and he made up his mind. I think I'm going to go to Nineveh because God has a way. He did it for me before I was ever called to New Mission Baptist Church. In June of 1976, I landed up in the Jewish hospital for 28 days because God couldn't get an appointment with me. I was too busy teaching, running revivals and everything else. And God couldn't get time with me. So he scheduled a 28-day stop at Jewish. And you know, God could have all the time in the world with me then. I had all, my calendar was empty. And he could get on my calendar, he had me in the right position. I was laying flat on my back, which meant I had to look up to the hills from which come my help. And God has a way of giving you time to think, Robert Smith. And he gave David time to think. And the Bible says, when David heard that God had blessed the house of Ebed-Edom, that the Gittite, that he fetched, he brought the ark back out and brought it to Jerusalem. And now, First Chronicles, I'm almost done, First Chronicles 15, 13, He's going to do it the right way. Notice what it says in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13. David says the first time God got angry because we didn't do it right. We had persons carrying the ark on an ox cart rather than putting staves or poles, uh, staves to the poles and carrying it on their shoulders who were Levites. We're going to do it God's way, God's word. Mm. And it worked. Same 30,000 persons to welcome the ark. Same kind of liturgical dance ministry. Same choral accompaniment. Same musical accompaniment. Same kind of adequate and organization and structure. And God blessed it. And David and the whole congregation is dancing because they're doing it according to God's way, God's will, in God's strength. And they're not mishandling sacred things. How will the ark of God, which represents the presence of God, ever come to us? It came to us in the incarnation. The word ark in Hebrew carries the same significance of ark in Greek. There it is in John 1.14, the incarnation. God's word comes, God's presence comes to us in the incarnation. The Word was made flesh and tabernacled. I'm going to be ungrammatically expressive here. 
it ought with us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How would the ark of God ever come to us? In the person of Jesus Christ, God became what he was not, human, and took on and did not leave what he always will be, and that is God. Word and flesh. God in spirit and yet in flesh. That's how he comes to us. He comes to us to empower us. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which we have seen with our eyes and heard with our ears and touched. Touched. In others' day, if you touched the ark, you didn't live. In our day, if you don't touch the ark, you don't live. He wants you to touch him. He wants you to reach out to him in faith and understand that if you touch me, I will touch you back. In fact, if you touch me, you'll lose your sin. Your sin will be washed away. Your condemnation will be gone. You can stop looking at yourself as a guilt-ridden person because I will take away your guilt if you touch me. He comes to us in the consummation. Same Greek word in Revelation 21 and 3 that's found in John 1, 1.14. I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the temple of the Lord comes as the bride adorned as one dressed for a husband. And God shall be with his people, that is, tabernacle with his people, and he will be their God and they will be his people. We see that in this whole matter of the consummation. When he comes again, he will come to dwell with us. Now he dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. I'll give you another comfort that Jesus says in John fourteen sixteen, who will abide with you forever. And then last of all, he comes to us in glorification. One of these days we will see him face to face. Not to sing with the angels, nor to see those who have gone. Not to sit with the elders under the white throne. Not for the crown that he's given, that I'm trying to run this race. All I want up in heaven is just to behold his face. And Revelation 22 and 4 says, and they shall see his face. Just. To behold his face. Just to behold his face. All I want up in heaven is just to behold his face. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed.